Please take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Romans. And we're now in chapter 15. So we continue our series. Romans 15, and we'll look at verses 1 through 13 together today. And if you're visiting with us, feel free to use the Bible located in the pew pocket in front of you. We'd love for you to look along and see what we're studying together. Romans 15, beginning at verse 1. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good, to build him up. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures we might have hope. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another, in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. As it is written, Therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. Again it is said, Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, Praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples extol him. And Isaiah again says, The root of Jesse will come, even he who arises to rule the Gentiles, and him will the Gentiles hope. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. It's a common phrase. You know it. You've probably said it. You definitely know the reality of it. Birds of a feather do what? Flock together. It's pretty common. And there's some debate as to how old it actually is. Some people believe that the phrase originated in the 15th century. Others believe that it goes all the way back to Plato himself. So before the time of Christ. And regardless of its origin, the reason why it's called on is because we know it to be true. Now, there is a scientific reality in the phrase. When we say it, we typically think of people hanging out that are similar to one another, but it is true that literal birds do flock together. I mean, a single species typically will fly together or spend their time together, and ornithologists explain this behavior as safety in numbers. It's a tactic to reduce their risk of attack, and there probably is a sense in which we do the same to protect ourselves. We feel safe and we feel comfortable around those who are like us. We see it all the time. It could be teenagers at high school lunch tables, or parents hanging out at a child's birthday party, or employees in the break room at work. We tend to gravitate toward 
those who share our interests, those who are like us. It's, a, it's like a magnetism it takes place as we clump together into our own little groups on the basis of similarities. Now, I'm not denying that this is a reality. Of course, I believe that it's true, and I don't think that there's anything wrong with it. <laughs> it is good for us to hang out and to feel comfortable around other people who are like us. These social magnets that are within us could be skin color, they could be political views, they could be entertainment preferences, they could be our stage of life that draw us to others. In fact, it's a variety of these things, and that's okay. God made us that way. But my question for you this morning is which of those magnets is the strongest for you? Which is the strongest? Which one has the greatest pull? What is it about you that most draws you to someone else? I've been wondering this for days now in light of this text. And in doing research this week, I came across some interesting lines from a dear brother and pastor in Jacksonville, Florida. I would commend him to you if you can find his podcast and listen. He's an African-American pastor at Shiloh Baptist Church. His name is H.B. Charles. Excellent preacher, great thinker. He's writing in particular here about issues of race, but I want you to know that they apply to more than this. Listen to his observation. He says, The Lord Jesus prayed that all who believe in him would be one, John 17. This is not an unanswered prayer. We are one in Christ, Ephesians 4. And our oneness in Christ encompasses every tribe and language and people and nation. And the gospel is big enough to embrace our diversity. But we must not shrink the gospel down to our own size. The grace that has gripped us compels us to embrace all who have been gripped by the grace of God. That's well said. Do you get it? So far, positionally speaking, spiritually, we're all the same in Jesus who have believed in him. But now notice his observation on practice. He says, this is the glorious vision of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is not, however, the reality on the ground in many Christian circles. The epidemic of race and racism that plagues society has also infected the church. It's an unavoidable and accepted fact that we have to live with people that are different than us. We live and go to school and work and even play together. But then we retreat to social cultural, and racial comfort zones when it's time to worship. In other words, he asks, shouldn't Christ be our greatest commonality? Shouldn't the strongest magnet within us be Jesus himself? And if that is true... Why does the church reflect such a lack of diversity? This is a struggle for churches in general. I'm not speaking just about Faith Bible Church. I'm speaking about churches as a whole. Why does diversity exist in every sphere of American life except for the church? You know, I'm not preaching a message on this, but I, please observe with me. Don't get defensive. Why is it that even if we overcome language barriers, let's say that everyone speaks English, we still have a white church and a black church and a Hispanic church and a Brazilian church. Have you noticed that? It's not only a struggle for churches, it's a struggle in churches. And let's be honest. 
any church should reflect the diversity of its area. So, I, I don't want you to think that as I'm asking these questions, that I look out among our church and I think that we should have an even proportion of people from different ethnicities. I realize that Naples is 95% Caucasian. But even despite the race thing, don't just think race, think beyond that. Are there other ways to express diversity? I mean, within this church, what is the strongest magnet that brings you together with other believers here? Is it age? Is it economic interest? Is it life stage? Is it mutual hobbies? Well, nothing is wrong, again, with hanging out with people who are externally and superficially like you, but my question is, should it be limited to this? Our Lord, through the book of Romans, argues otherwise. See, while it may be hard for us to discern, Romans is about more than the righteousness of God. It's been a while since the church as a whole has been in the book, but if you've ever read through the book of Romans, you totally get the fact that, oh yeah, he's talking about God providing righteousness and the person of Jesus, but there's something else going on that we often forget. There's this frequent mention of Jew and Gentile over and over and over and over again, and nobody ever seems to pick up on that being a theme in Romans. Chapters 1 through 3, for example are not just about the guilt of mankind, it's about the guilt of the Gentiles, and then it's about the guilt of the Jews. And then we think that Romans is just about the gospel of God, and we talk about how chapters 1 through 11 are all about the gospel, except for the fact that chapters 9, 10, and 11 are all about Jew and Gentile relations, and about Gentile inclusion. And then we get to the practical section of the book, and he mentions this stuff about loving one another, And he spends a chapter and a half on Jew and Gentile relations. Romans is indeed about the righteousness of God, but it seems to have something else in mind as well. It's fascinating to me that this can be vividly seen in Paul's usage of the term Jew. In Romans, his use of Jew in Romans almost equals the number of times he uses it in all of the rest of his epistles. Gentiles, he actually uses it more in Romans than in the remainder of his entire corpus. See, the point for Paul is that righteousness in Jesus is for all, and therefore it impacts all. Righteousness in Jesus is for all, and therefore it impacts all. The righteousness that we are, I mean, that we are given in Christ impacts the way that we relate to one another. We've seen this in the last couple of weeks from Romans 14. He's been talking about the strong and the weak, and we've noted time and time again, the strong were probably Gentile believers who didn't have Old Testament background and felt the freedom to enjoy their liberty in Christ. And the weak, on the other hand, were those who were predominantly from a Jewish background and therefore inherited more rules and felt like they still needed to do those. This is Paul's concern. This is what we've been seeing. And so Paul was saying, like, all right, you guys must get along. You need to accept one another. You need to receive one another. You need to serve one another. And as unlikely as it may seem, he says that such harmony, 
Such unity in the church is not only possible, but it is probable. And this is how he ends his argument. As hard as it may seem for you to get along with people from different backgrounds, people from different ethnic origins, people with different consciences, people with different preferences, he says it is probable if, if, listen, if you look to the example of Christ. It's only possible for different people to be able to get along as one if they will look to the example of Christ. And particularly, there's two features of Christ's example that is offered for us here to enable this type of unity. The first is his model of self-sacrifice. We'll see that in verses 1 through 7. And the second is his commitment to God's plan. We'll see that in verses 7 through 13. So if we're going to model the type of unity that Christ expects of his church, we must first look to his own model of self-sacrifice. This will nurture harmony among believers with different backgrounds. Look at verses 1 and 2 again. He's still talking about the strong and weak stuff here. And notice, we who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. Now, who's he speaking to? The strong. And notice that he throws himself into the category of the strong. It's likely cultural Gentiles are given the responsibility and the obligation to serve others who are weaker. To serve cultural Jews instead of pleading, I mean, instead of pleasing themselves. And remember, when we're talking about differences here, we have to get this right, or we're not going to understand the message. We're talking about non-sinful differences. Okay? This, this passage isn't about us getting along with everybody on the face of the planet. This passage is about us getting along with other people who have repented of their sin and placed their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Both strong and weak in this verse are believers. The only difference between the two is that their conscience is different. They are enabled to enjoy certain things. For example, some people were able to enjoy meat But some people, their conscience said, no, I don't think I should eat meat because I don't know if it was prepared in a proper way. Same was true of wine. The other thing was days. Remember the Sabbath? Some people thought you can do whatever you want on Sunday or Saturday. And then other people thought, no, 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 I can't. This is a day of rest. You know, I I can't work. I can't play. This just needs to be me sitting in my room alone. The week had more rules. The strong had less rules, and yet all the while they were supposed to serve one another. Particularly, the strong, Paul says, have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak. The limitations of the weak. There are just certain things that certain people in this church can't enjoy. And he says, you need to be sensitive to that and come alongside them. And it's interesting that the word there is to bear, because in our cultural context, when we hear the word bear... What do we typically think of? Put up with, endure, tolerate. But that is not at all what Paul is asking us to do. We don't just put up with somebody that is different than us. We don't just endure them. We don't just tolerate them. We don't just hold on until they get over it. But the verb actually means to come up under and carry a weight. It's the same word that's used in Galatians 6 where he says that 
those who are overcome by a trespass should be supported by other believers. We, we come along and we shoulder the load with them. We, we, we pitch in. Even though they have this weight on their conscience, we accommodate, not compromise, biblical truth, but accommodate. We adjust to help them. Practically speaking, if they don't feel comfortable eating meat, we don't serve it to them. If they're uncomfortable drinking wine, we don't pour them a glass or intentionally drink it in their presence. If they think Sunday is a Sabbath, we don't ask for their help with a home improvement project. Make sense? It's pretty simple. And he says, your obligation, strong believer, is to not please yourself, but to let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. Conversely, instead of pleasing yourself, he says, your number one concern should be the pleasure of another person. And then he defines that pleasure by building them up, their spiritual good. I don't want anybody to think that it is our responsibility to be people pleasers. It isn't our job to make everyone happy. But Paul is assuming that true Christians in a church would find the most happiness in spiritual growth. And therefore, we should be willing to do whatever would bring pleasure to another person in seeing them grow and become more like Jesus. It's a radical concept that he's calling for here. It it isn't just something that is nominal. This is something that's real. These are some of the questions that a strong believer should be asking. How can I strengthen my brother or sister's soul? They're constantly wondering, how can I do him or her spiritual good? What can I limit to help this person's holiness? What sacrifice can I make to advance his or her walk? What about you? Do you ever ask those questions? Do they ever even come through your mind? How do you evaluate your church experience? I mean, if you know that a former position in which I served, I was a membership pastor at a church with a lot of people, which meant that it was constantly my responsibility to speak to new people as they would come. And it was so funny. I mean, I would have these conversations on a weekly basis, and people would tell me what they were looking for in a church. I want a place that does such and such, or we need such and such, or, you know, this last place didn't have this, and we really were looking for a fill-in-the-blank. And most of the things were good, but the orientation was always I and me and mine and what I'm looking for. Very rarely did I ever come across someone in the literally hundreds of interviews that I did that said, you know, we're just looking to serve. I just re- we just want to plug in and get involved and help other people become more like Jesus. It's kind of rare. And yet that seems to be the expectation that Paul places upon the mature Christian. This is what grown-up Christianity looks like. Not a concern for self, but a concern for others. It is an obligation to care for the spiritually malnourished. It engages those with different viewpoints that may not be as theologically mature as your own. It takes responsibilities for other believers. It works with them. It bears with them. It targets their good. I'm only a month out, not even a month out yet, from my 13th wedding anniversary. It has passed. We celebrated, it was great, and it's always nice to reflect 
on the 13 wonderful years that we've enjoyed together. Now, as great as they have been, and unfortunately my wife is not here, so you need to share good things about this little illustration. (laughs) As great as these 13 years have been, I, get that right, I could have made them better if I would have followed the 100-100 principle. Maybe you've heard of it. The classic line is that for any relationship to work, it must maintain a 50-50 partnership. You do your part, I do mine, but this is not what we vowed to do. The marriage covenant is a 100-100 relationship. Remember the vow? I, so-and-so, take you, so-and-so, for my lawful wife or husband, to have and to hold from this day forward, for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, until death do us part. Now, please... Keep in mind what it doesn't say. It does not say, I will take care of you as long as you take care of me. I will try my best as long as you try to. I will love you as long as you make me happy. I will love you until I don't feel like it anymore. Just a little note here. If you ever want me to do your wedding, I will not do it if you try to change the vows. (laughs) Why do people want to rewrite their own vows today? Because they don't like 100-100 commitment. The relationship being called for here amongst the weak and the strong is not a 50-50. It's not a 51-49. It's a 100-100. Similarly, this commitment level that Paul calls for among believers in the church is 100-100. This is the expectation of nurturing harmony in the local church. You and me, but you as a member of a church bear 100% of the responsibility of caring for other believers in the congregation. I know that flies in the face of modern church growth theory, but that's the Bible. As a church, even in our last members meeting, we covenanted together to do this. For those of you who weren't there, I trust you received an email on the update. But we wanted to update the language of the expectations of what we had for people who said that they were going to follow Jesus with us here. And these were the exact words that we agreed to. We will work and pray for the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace, walking together in brotherly love, exercising an affectionate care and watchfulness over each other, and faithfully admonishing and correcting one another as occasion may require. Now, I don't know if that is, sounds like too complex of language for you, but I want to bring out a few features of it because they're very intentional. It's, it's kind of unpleasant. <laughs> I mean, it says we will work at caring for one another. It says that we will walk together in brotherly love, not run ahead. Notice this. We exercise. That's an unpleasant word. We exercise an affection and a watch care over one another. That's hard work. And how do we do this? How in the world are we expected to sustain the emotional energy to be a part of a church body in which we are constantly looking out for other people? Verses 3 and 4 give the answer. Christ did not please himself. But as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction that through endurance and through encouragement of the Scriptures we might have hope. 
Notice that he would point them to Christ as the paradigm for their own ministry. If you want to know how to sustain such selfless ministry, you look to Jesus. He is the example of this. Now, I want you to keep two parts in mind here of what Jesus has done. It says that one, Christ did not please himself. But then secondly, note that he suffered reproach in obedience to God. Christ did not concern himself with his own pleasure, with his own comfort, with his own convenience. When he came to save, he did it for us. He did it at great cost to himself. And even the text from Psalm 69.9 appeals to this. In the original context, this particular psalm spoke of a zealous worshiper of Yahweh suffering on account of his zeal and devotion. When you read through Psalm 69, you see that as someone who's being made fun of on account of doing that which was right, reminding us that the will of God is always costly. But here, the apostle directly applies the psalm to Jesus as he was the ultimate example of suffering on account of zeal and devotion. In fact, the New Testament writers will use this same passage no less than ten times to refer to Jesus' suffering in his passion. And it reminds the readers that both Jesus and all the righteous are willing to pay a high price for obedience. He says, look, this is the way it's always been. I know this sounds hard. I know this sounds difficult. But this is what Jesus has done. And this is what you're being called to do. Jesus is our example. And then notice verse 4. It's not a key part of their argument, but it is parenthetical. He mentions that, even the Old Testament, where they quotes from, is replete with instructional examples of those who suffered this way. He said, when you read through the Old Testament and when you read through the Scriptures, you're going to see this has always been the pattern. Following Yahweh is hard. It always has been. The godly saints of old have provided an example for us so that we would endure and be encouraged by their example so that we would remain hopeful and confident and when things, when things get hard. Listen, Jesus is our example. The Word is our encouragement. And that's what tells us about Jesus. I remember a friend of mine in seminary. He was not a manly man by any stretch of the imagination in his physical stature. But he aspired to be. He was on some crazy workout regimen where it was his goal to gain about 30 to 40 pounds of muscle over the course of the next year. Now, I... (laughs) I don't think he ever succeeded at that. But I do remember one particular lunchtime conversation in which he told me about his motivation. He says that Lou Ferrigno was his motivation. Now, for those of you who are too young to know, Lou Ferrigno was the original Hulk. He was a bodybuilder and an actor, a better bodybuilder than an actor. But he still looked strong nonetheless. And so the guy said that he bought this poster of Lou Ferrigno. He posted it in on his garage And so that every time he hit the weights, he would look at Lou (laughs) and be motivated to go. I think we all have things like that, these motivational, inspirational heroes. What Jesus Christ is for us is that inspiration and that motivation that the Christian heart longs for. He is the person, and yet we view him not through a poster, but through the word. That is what provides us with the hope. And so when the the obstacles seem overwhelming, when it seems a little too difficult to take on this type of ministry to others, the Scriptures are constantly pointing us back to the example of Christ 
And it says, look, seriously, look at Jesus and remember what He's done and this will enable a new level of ministry that you've never known before. i got to say this, relentless service to others is hard. Living for another's pleasure is painful. Inconveniencing yourself for the week will get old. Opening your home week after week, adjusting your preferences, caring about them, not having them ask about you. How many times, I've heard this complaint so much, and I, please, I don't remember who it was that told me, so if you've complained about this, don't send me an angry letter this week. But I have heard on a couple of occasions people say, I'm always inviting people over to my house, but nobody ever invites me over to their house. <laughs> well, welcome to Christ-likeness. That's the way that it works. Why do you have such expectations? He says, look to Jesus. And you find him in his word. Listen, I think sometimes we just expect that we're just going to naturally get along with everybody. But if we're really honest, church people will get on your nerves too. They do. And if this church is going to be what it needs to be, sometimes we will naturally rub people the wrong way. Now, now hang with me. Of course, sometimes we're going to have to forgive one another when we sin against one another, but it's not always sin. Sometimes we just need to forbear with one another. It means to put up with. <laughs> not everything that someone else does that you don't like is a sin. And you're going to have to love them and embrace them anyway, according to this text. And so how do we do that? We, we look to Christ in His Word. A commitment to harmony with believers with different backgrounds will stretch you way outside of your comfort zone, but you should persevere. And this is why he adds this prayer in verse 5. When all else fails, pray. Look at verse 5. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another and accord with Christ Jesus that together you may be with one voice, that you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Don't you love that opening title? The way that he modifies or describes God here. God is the one from whom endurance and encouragement comes. This isn't talking about the random trial. He's talking about endurance and encouragement for relational tension with other people in the body. There's an interesting parallel here, by the way, to verse 4. Notice endurance and encouragement are listed again. In verse 4, he says, endurance and encouragement come from the Word. In verse 5, he says, endurance and encouragement come from God, teaching us <laughs> that we find the endurance and encouragement that we need from God through His Word. I think sometimes we pray and ask for God's help and difficulty and we just trust that he'll zap us like a lightning bolt with some type of divine energy. All the while neglecting the resource that he's given us all along. It is his word that gives us his endurance and his encouragement for, so that we can pursue such harmony with one another and accord with Christ Jesus for the glory of God. How often do you pray this way? Are you praying to be in tune with Jesus? Are, are we seeking endurance and comfort from above to be in tune with Christ and our service to one another despite our differences? Uniformity may be easier than unity, but it's not nearly as beautiful. 
I was going to ask Kelly to come and play a note for us on the piano, but I just want to use your imagination more than a real object lesson for a moment. For those of you who are not musically inclined, you understand that there's a difference between unison and harmony. Unison is when everybody sings the same note. Harmony is when people sing different notes that complement the main line of the melody. For an example of the way that music works, we could sing the main tune of anything, like Jesus Loves Me. But then we could also have an orchestra play Jesus Loves Me as well and give it a full beauty that it never otherwise would have had. Different instruments playing different notes, all organizing themselves around the same central melody. That is the language that Paul is using in this text. Look at his prayer. We see diversity when he talks about them being in harmony with one another. We see unity where he says together and with one voice. By the way, together literally is one mind and one voice. We even used those words when we sang a few minutes ago. And what's the means? What is the tune to which we organize ourselves? It must be in accord with Christ Jesus. And the motive, where is it all directed? For the glory of the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. As we exist together differently, diversely, but in unity, we are giving glory and honor and praise to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. That is the means by which God has chosen to glorify Himself. So on the basis of Christ's model of self-sacrifice, Paul again appeals for us. Look at verse 7. Two, therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. This is how Paul opened the section on unity. Look at chapter 14, verse 1. Go all the way back up. As for the one who is weak in the faith, remember, welcome him, but do not quarrel over opinions. And this is how he closes it. And you need to remember something about the word welcome or the word to receive It's not just the Greek word for welcome or receive. There's a preposition that's added to the front of it which typically intensifies the word. So here, he's not just saying accept them or put up with them or formally receive them, but but do so in a way that you bring them into your circle. Accept them into your life. Welcome them into your word, world. Oh, and by the way, do it the way Christ did it. Notice that. And how did he do it? Christ received us at great cost to himself. In fact, he didn't just receive us when we were different. Romans 5 says that he received us when we were diametrically opposed to him. We were his enemies. He didn't just put up with us, but he made us one with himself. And additionally, I might add, he didn't do it for a pat on the back or for personal fulfillment. He did it for the glory of God. But for now, would you ask yourself how your welcoming ministry has been with the other believers at this church? Have differences, and they're there, we know they're there, have differences with others divided you or diversified you? As pastors, we ask you to pray for this regularly, by the way. It's in the email that we send out every week. We pray for it every Wednesday night. I pray for it every week. And that is that we, would, we pray, ask you to pray, that we would seek unity in the midst of our diversities. Pray that God would give us wisdom and compassion and caring for one another. Praying for it every week. 
So the question is, as you pray, as you pray through the membership directory at Faith Bible Church, with whom do you need to emulate the self-sacrifice of Jesus? When your name, I mean, when your eyes go over the names on that list, and when you're looking through and seeing these other believers, who on that list would it just be easier to avoid or to label as non-compatible and let them go? I know you would object. Justin, I, I just don't gel with that person. Things just don't click with us. You know what? That may be the very person that you're called to include. See, these scruples of the weak were part of their background. It was part of their identity. It would do well to remember that opinions differ because experiences do and preferences vary because backgrounds do. So, dear saint, with whom should you reconcile? Who is God leading you to receive? So we're to move to harmonize with other believers through Christ's example of self-sacrifice. But there's a second feature of Christ's ministry that enables this harmony, and that is our Lord's commitment to God's plan. Christ's commitment to God's plan nurtures harmony among believers from different backgrounds. We see it in verses 7-13. The focus is all about Christ's allegiance to what God has been trying to do from eternity past. Look at verse 7. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. We just saw that, but I want to keep it tied to verse 8. For I tell you that Christ has became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. Now, all right, reality check here. I totally know, by the way, when I'm reading through the scriptures at the beginning of the service, when people check out. I'm like, uh, I don't know what this means. <laughs> like, I can see it on your eyes. Like, everybody was tracking with me, verses 1 through 7, and then it got to 8, and we're like, mm, I'm not sure about that one. Be honest. I know that this could seem rather confusing, but it doesn't have to be so. You just need to remember something as we're working our way through these verses. God's purpose, this is what it's telling us, God's purpose has always been to make for himself one worshiping community for his glory. That's what he's trying to say. To understand this section, you need to remember what he's talking about, and that is believers from different backgrounds and therefore different capacities to enjoy their liberty in Christ receiving one another. We're talking about God being glorified and local church harmony via unity in Christ amid adversity. Now, you get the point here, but here's the deal. He gives us the example of Christ again to show us how this could be done. But this time, instead of emphasizing Christ's sacrifice, he's going to emphasize Christ's mission. Why did Jesus come? Not how did he come, but why did he come? And the idea is that whatever Jesus' mission was would be ours. Whatever motivated him would motivate us. It's a reminder of the end goal. And so we see that Christ became a servant. I'm looking at the text now for two reasons. The first one is in verse 8. The second is in verse 9. Here's the first reason Christ became a servant. Notice, he did this to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs. Now, the circumcised are who? The Jews, obviously. 
Paul is even calling attention to the ritualistic background of the Jewish believers for the sake of the Gentile members of this church. And the point is, he wants them to remember that God came to show, I mean, Jesus came to show God's truthfulness, to fulfill or to confirm God's promises to the patriarchs. Abraham, Moses, David. In fact, uh, a former pastor friend of mine and author actually wrote a summary of the Old Testament and the New Testament. And listen to the titles. I think they're helpful. Old Testament, promises made. New Testament, promises kept. I know of no better way to summarize the entirety of the Scriptures than that. And what he is telling us here is that Jesus' mission all along was to to fulfill the promises that were made in the Old Testament. And guess who they were made to? They were made to Israel. They were made to the Jews. Now, just kind of scanning the audience this morning, I think 98% of you (laughs) are like not Jewish at all. (laughs) And so you're thinking like, oh, that doesn't mean much for me. I'm not Jewish. But you understand that God's whole plan was working through the nation of Israel from the very beginning. If he would not have fulfilled his plan to them, His promises for us never would have reached our hearts in practical reality. So God had promised from the very beginning that He would save and that He would redeem His own people, the people that He chose, that He would rule them, that He would bless the nation of Israel. And He didn't make those promises to anyone else. And so when Christ came, He secured salvation and rescue for God's chosen people, the Jews. But, certain scriptures in the Old Testament hinted that the people of God would be wider than ethnic Israel. And Christ's coming clearly benefited the Gentiles as well. Look at verse 9. And, no, the first reason was for the, I mean, the Jews. The next, and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for His mercy. There was another purpose. The plan of God was for people beyond the bloodline of Israel to glorify Him for His mercy as well. And so thus Christ also came to save Gentiles for the glory of God. So on behalf of the Jews, He became a servant to magnify God's faithfulness. And to the Gentiles, He became a servant to magnify God's mercy. And so it has been the plan of God from the very beginning to save Jew and Gentile alike for His glory. Now the question for the first century reader is this. Really? You expect us to get along with them? I mean, the Jewish reader who had been taught that salvation was an exclusively Jewish privilege would struggle here. So Paul is going to strengthen his case with several passages from the Old Testament that spoke to this reality. And he quotes from each of the major three sections of the Hebrew Bible, the law, the writings, and the prophets. And I want you to see how he's building his case here. Because the Jews would struggle with this. Therefore, he's using the Old Testament to prove that the 98% of us in here should actually be in here. The law, verse 10. And again, excuse me, let's look at the second half of verse 9. The writings and the prophets. As it is written, therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. The reason I say this comes from the law and the prophets is because this same passage occurs in Psalm 1849. It also occurs in 2 Samuel 22.50. But the point of the passage is the same. David praises God among the Gentiles because he gave him victory over them. And you're thinking, well, what is there to celebrate there? 
Well, when David was ruling over those Gentiles, they then became a part of the people of God and the blessed promised ruler now oversaw them in his kingdom. It was a preview that there would be Gentiles who would be included in this Jewish rule, in God's special rule through his people. We could spend a lot of time on this, but we need to move quickly. There's another quote here from the law, verse 10. And again, it is said, Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. This one comes from Deuteronomy 32, 43. For those of you familiar with your Old Testament, this is the song of Moses. This is his victory song before he dies, and it's promising salvation and victory for the Jews. And then there's this weird line in there that most of them just quickly read over in verse 43 that actually calls on the Gentiles to praise God for his unstoppable victory. Now that's strange. How are the Gentiles going to rejoice in God's victory if they're enemies to the people of God? Well, the verse is hinting that they will not always be his enemies. The Gentiles need to be included in this call to rejoice in Yahweh because they are now one of his people. One day, the Gentiles would be on this winning team. The writings, look at verse 11. Praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples extol him. Look, Psalm 117.1, which by the way, if you ever want to get points for memorizing an entire chapter of the Bible, this is the one you want, because there's only two verses. <laughs> but the entire thing is about Gentiles praising the Lord. So there, in the Hebrew hymn book, there is a hymn written to Gentiles saying, hey, you guys rejoice, sing praises to God as well. Christ came to secure worshipers from Jew and Gentile together. And then the final one comes from Isaiah, the prophets. Verse 12, the root of Jesse will come, and even he who arises to rule the Gentiles, in him will the Gentiles hope. Here, in Isaiah 11.10, it is prophesied that a descendant of Jesse, someone from the line of the king of David, will be the rallying point of all peoples, the hope of every man, even the Gentiles. It was there in the Old Testament all along. This was God's plan. Thus Jesus, the hope of the Jews, would also become the hope of the Gentiles, and they too would find confidence and joy in His royal reign. Now, Justin, that's an interesting history lesson. I appreciate that. I haven't been asking myself this question. This hasn't been a concern for me. Please, for a moment, put yourself in that first century world this would have been an impossibility for the believers of that day. An analogy may be helpful. The other day, my kids and I were at a restaurant which had a QRG code on the menu where you could watch, like if you scanned it, you could watch videos of cats and dogs. And like the, the bulk of the videos were cats and dogs that play together. And everybody is so enamored by these videos of cats and dogs playing together because they know, by nature, cats and dogs don't play together. It's an anomaly. Like, they're supposed to eat one another and fight one another, whatever it is they do. You can tell how much I've spent time with animals. <laughs> this would be the equivalent of saying, all right, there's going to be a nation of cats and there's going to be a nation of dogs and they're all just going to get together. They're going to be the one representation. Or to use an analogy from even your days in science and school. It's like successfully blending oil and water. How would that ever happen? Yes, I know. What? 
How could anybody ever successfully get these two groups together? The Jews have always been so into themselves. The Gentiles have always been so far away. And yet he says here, it will happen. This was the great challenge of the church. Now, here we go. little test for you. I'm giving you some homework. Don't worry, you're not going to get a grade. But I am seriously asking you to read something outside of church. Please write it down. Please, at some point today, read for your own edification. Ephesians 2, 11 through Ephesians 3, 13. Paul explains the significance of his ministry in bringing Jew and Gentile together through the gospel. Ephesians 2, 11 to 3, 13. And his big summary says, God was doing this. God was putting Jew and Gentile together in the same entity, the body, the church, so that, and I'm quoting here from Ephesians 3.10, so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might be made known to the rulers and authorities in heavenly places. This diversity was supposed to be the evidence of God's dominating power and grace. Now I get it. There's not a strong Jewish population in this church. But even without it, do you see the implications of God's plan for us and our varied backgrounds? If even Jew and Gentile were supposed to get together as one, how much more so should we, all of the same country of origin, most of us citizens here of these United States, how much more should we be one for the glory of God? Social, cultural, and racial lines can be some of the hardest to cross. Yet this is the plan of God and His church for His glory. Do any of you know the difficulty of trying to, what I would call, break into a strong family? I've, I felt that. I've seen that pressure. <laughs> I felt it. My wife felt it when she was trying to become a part of our family. I remember the first time that she came to visit there was this awkwardness because she didn't know whose chair that was because so-and-so always sits in that chair. and didn't know how things work for birthdays. She didn't know, I, this is going to sound horrible, but it's the tradition in our home that all the men eat first and all the like, women and children eat last. I know it's horrible. I know. I, I don't, don't tell me that. But it's just the way it's always been. Like, it's just a holdover from the side. And look, I mean, there's just these certain things that we do. And look, when we sing happy birthday, like we intentionally all sing off key. And it's, it's it, I mean, my wife, well, girlfriend at the time, had no clue, you know, what was going on. Our little traditions, our little world. That's hard. It's hard. <laughs> she can marry in, sure. But to become a part. Now, I rejoice to say that now she has a closer relationship with my family than I do. <laughs> if they want to know who I am, they talk through Tanya. And if I want to know who they are, I ask Tanya. <laughs> She's in. <laughs> but it's been 14 years in the making. I mean, it's been a long, arduous effort. And what he's saying here is that, look, it's hard to break into certain groups. But break in, you will. And allow them to break in, you will, if you will glorify God in the church. And it doesn't matter. We all know the experience of being an outsider, whether it was a new job, 
whether it was moving into a new community, we all know what it's like to be different. So look, sometimes the lines are drawn for family. Sometimes it's a town. Sometimes it's educational experiences. Sometimes it's ethnicity. Sometimes it's culture. Sometimes it's social class. Sometimes it's skin color. Sometimes it's political affiliation. Sometimes it's educational preferences that separate us from other believers. But such obstacles are really, in truth, opportunities for God to do something great for His glory. You see, we receive one another as Christ has received us so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God may now be made known to the rulers and authorities in heavenly places. Ephesians 3.10 I know this sounds hard, laborious, impossible, idealistic, uncomfortable, impractical, and inconvenient. I may as well be Miss America wishing for world peace. Seriously. You expect pastors to say stuff like this. You're like, oh, this is just the stuff that preachers say. Yeah, 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 we're all going to get along. We're all going to be one happy family. Ladies and gentlemen, this is not a preacher concern. This is a Jesus concern. The sovereign Lord of the church has arranged it to be this way. Church growth theory tells us that we should just go ahead and accept the fact that we're going to have to organize around something smaller than the gospel. That's 95% of the churches in the United States have bought into this, and they say, you know what, let's just go ahead and accept the fact that whoever the main speaker is on Sunday, he's going to draw people his own color and his own age, and then everybody else is just going to have to organize around them. Or maybe through marketing, you start to organize a church around people of similar life experiences, singles, newly married groups, young professional gatherings, or God forbid, this actually happens. There's churches that organize around a similar social identity. And please, if you've ever been a part of one of these, I, I don't, I'm not trying to be cruel, I'm just saying this is contrary to God's plan. Cowboy churches, motorcycle churches, arts churches, hipster churches. That is not God's plan. Now show me a church with cowboys, motorcyclists, uh, artistic people, and hipsters. And like that's pretty interesting. <laughs> that's like the only thing they really have in common is Jesus, truly. But the question remains for us. Despite what the church growth theory experts would tell us, do we long to give glory to God in the way that he has commanded or not? This has been his plan all along. This is why Jesus came. I've got to say, this is why I'm so encouraged when people formally partner with our church and membership, and they say, after we've already told them, heads up, like, hey, this is what we're trying to do, they say, yeah, I'm, I'm into that. I want to do that. I'm all in. I, I see it. I see it among you. It thrills our hearts as elders. I know it brings brings a smile to the face of God when people are asking, all right, uh, who should I be building up? How can I serve? How can I advance the gospel here? How can I put God's glory on display? With whom can I showcase diversity created in the gospel? I love that. And for those of you who have not yet enlisted in this work, I'll go ahead and warn you, it's hard. 
but it's not impossible. The Spirit is at work among us. Listen to the words of Paul's final prayer in verse 13. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. Paul is confident that the church at Rome and the churches in the United States or even Faith Bible Church here in Naples will be able to display this kind of harmony. The net effect of all this is that God intended to save people different than you. Not just Jews, but Gentiles. For this Christ became a servant. Not just to save conservatives, but progressive. Not just whites, but people of color. Not just middle class, but wealthy and poor And maybe you're here today and you said, you know what, Justin, I struggle with this. This just isn't me. I I do better keeping to myself. I do better with my small little group. I struggle. Listen, you don't have to struggle forever. God has promised to help you. Look to Him in prayer. He can fill you with the joy and the peace needed to sustain this work. I mean, you just need to consider that the same Holy Spirit that indwells you, indwells them. And He is drawing you to one another and empowering you for this very task. There is hope. And I see it. I see wonderful expressions of this here. I see the unlikely mixture of cats and dogs and oil and water. And I know that it brings glory to God. But we're not perfect. We, we're not nailing it on, on, I mean, firing on all cylinders here. God has blessed us in so many ways, but we have room to grow, do we not? So, as is evidence for us here, we must rely on the Spirit to enable us to continue to receive those with whom we would otherwise disagree. Back in 2009, a girl posted a video of herself singing the Eric Whitaker song, Sleep. If you've never heard of Whitaker, he's like a, kind of a postmodern composer. He's pretty interesting. Uh, his videos are some of the most listened to and watched and viewed on YouTube. Whitaker found out about this girl recording this song, and so he actually encouraged others to sing, record, and to post videos of themselves singing along with her. And what he was going to do was take their videos and put them together with hers so as to make this one virtual choir. The first one was kind of rough. It was 185 voices from 12 different countries. A little sloppy. But he did it. So then he was like, you know what, we can do this better. He went for virtual choir 2.0. In 2.0, he got over 2,000 videos from 58 countries. In light of the success, he was like, okay, let's see if we can do this again. So 3.0 in 2012 came out. It got 3,746 videos from 2,945 people from 73 countries singing a 14-part piece (laughs) entitled Water Night. It's phenomenal. There has actually been a 4.0 There's a 5.0 coming out in a few months. It just keeps growing and growing and growing. The the last count 
of his successful endeavors to blend together all these voices from so many different backgrounds into one song was 8,409 videos from 5,905 singers from 101 different countries. It's mind-blowing. When asked why he would pursue such an endeavor, listen to Whitaker's answer. He says, it's not only about the music making, but to find people in your area or other parts of the world who share common interests and the same love of choral music. I don't know if it's spiritual, physiological, or psychological phenomenon, but I believe now more than ever that singing is a universal built-in mechanism designed to cultivate empathy and compassion. I hope that more people from across the globe will support and join our fun, loving group made up of every sort of personality, nearly every nationality, and a group bound together by a simple vision to be part of something larger than themselves. Isn't that interesting? Whitaker's not a Christian. But little does he know that in such an endeavor, he is in a small way reflecting the passion of our Lord Jesus Christ. Assembling a group from all ethnicities, all backgrounds, to sing one master song to the glory of His Father. The 4th century theologian Athanasius noted that such orchestration is the overarching goal of Christ in the universe. And in one of His writings, Christ is presented as a master musician. These are His words orchestrating and adjusting all things and people into a song for His glory, combining parts into holes and moving them by His beck and will to produce the unity of the universe and His order. That is our God. This is His plan. Enabled totally by His sacrifice. And so the closing question for us today would be, are there any adjustments that He needs to make in you, for you to contribute to this plan for harmony in His church. For some of you, the question would be, are you even one of His worshipers? Are you even dedicated to His plan? Have you ever repented of your sin and yourself and placed your faith in Christ alone and in nothing else? So as to be able to worship Him. It isn't through your good works or your efforts to try to get along with other people that you'll ever become a part of this cosmic choir. It is only through that which Jesus Christ Himself has done through His death, His burial, and His resurrection. If that doesn't make sense to you, you have questions about that. Talk to the member that brought you today. Talk to one of the pastors. We'd be happy to speak with you more about that. But for those of you who already know that you're in, If you're a worshiper, my question for you is, is your life truly in tune with Christ? Are you following His example? Not not just generally, but specifically in receiving those who differ from you and supporting those whose consciences lead them to do things differently than you do. Are you pursuing His mission? Maybe you need to expand your social sphere. (laughs) We have the opportunity over the summer to sign up for new small groups for the next year, or maybe you have a list of people that you want to have over to your home. Does that group, does that list reflect the diversity being called for here in Romans 15? I would say that as we prepare for communion, 
There is no better time than now to reflect on that.